Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. I'm the founder of the Miller Law Group and a trainer at the Center for Understanding and Conflict. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. My guest today is Hubert Johnson. He has over 14 years of experience as a tax attorney. And in that time, Mr. Johnson taught graduate tax law at Baruch College, lectured to tax professionals in seminars and training across the country, and has co-written two books on tax debt resolution. In one year, Mr. Johnson had 300 offers and compromise accepted that he personally filed. That's quite an, that's quite an impressive number and had launched a Guardian Tax Law PLLC in November of 2018 and has assisted thousands of individuals and businesses dealing with IRS and state tax issues. Welcome, Hubert Johnson, to Dialogue on Divorce, Divorce Dialogues. How are you today? Doing great, and thank you for having me. Yeah, so, you know, tax issues are really sometimes a thorny issue when people are getting divorced. And sometimes people say, well, I never knew that we were doing that. I never signed the tax return in real life. I didn't you know, do all these sorts of things. But before we get into some of those sort of complicated things, just basically in the year in which people are getting divorced, right? They sometimes wonder, should we get divorced right away or should we wait? And one of the reasons that people choose to wait I mean, primarily, I've got to tell you, Hubert, that the biggest reason people decide to do it now or wait is emotion, emotional reasons. But when you're getting to like a finances reason, one of the questions is, which is better from a tax perspective? Should we hold off a little bit and file jointly for this year, whatever this year is, or should we get divorced and file separately? So how do you answer that question? So on a purely, you know, will it save us money on our tax return? Married filing jointly is always the best way to go. But problem <laughs> there's the but we, we get situations all the time where one person's handling the finances, one person's filing the tax returns, and the other person isn't exactly sure what's going on. So to protect yourself, especially if you don't trust your to soon be ex spouse, it can be highly recommended to first of all find out, do a thorough review of your tax account with the IRS, see what's going on, and file separately if you don't trust what's going on because too many people get burned. You know, I just want to say to the listeners, that's probably good advice, even if you're not getting divorced. If you're not getting divorced and you don't trust what's going on with your spouse, you should probably not file a joint tax return just because you're married because you don't have to, right? So Absolutely correct. So who gets to determine if the filing status is going to be married or married filing separately? Who gets to decide that? Well, the parties do. And technically, if one person's been filing every year as married filing joint, and this is, you typically see one spouse handle the taxes, they file all of that. But if you want to file married filing separate, just inform your spouse that you want to do that this year and then just go file. They can't force you to file it the other way. Is that right? Right. And if you don't sign the actual documents to uh, either sign the tax return or sign the file authorization 
technically you can't be held to that tax return. So there's plenty of spouses that will just sign for their spouse on the e-file authorization. It's filed electronically and nobody's going to question it unless there's a discrepancy, unless you go file your own tax return and then they'll say, okay, well, show me this person actually filed this return or authorized it. So show proof of that. Right. Yeah. So how common do you think that is, Hubert Johnson, that people, spouses just file, sign for their spouse? I would say it's fairly common. I would say so. One person, and a lot of it is just one person doesn't want to be burdened with it. It's not their cup of tea. They don't know what's going on. And they're glad to let their spouse take care of it. Problem is, when your interests do not align anymore with your spouse and you're separating or considering that, or someone has a business where they're not fully disclosing what's happening in the business, it very well might not be in your best interest to file jointly. All right. So... How do you, how does a divorcing person get a handle on the tax situation if they weren't the one just filing for the other? They weren't the one who was managing that, and they're not the one who's really on top of the family finances. We'll go to the source, which is, in this case, the IRS or state. The IRS actually has a, um, they've actually proved some things where you can go online at irs.gov and you can set up your own tax account and see what's under your tax account, which returns have been filed, which ones haven't, the balances per year. And sometimes it'll show, I had someone today bring in a record from that, and a lot of them showed missing information or couldn't pull up the information. You can do it online, or you can call the IRS directly at 1-800-829-1040. And the IRS is impossible to get a hold of. So here's a tip. Call between 5 to 7 p.m. They're still open, and most people don't know that. That's the best time to get through. It's good to know. I think I'm going to make a note of that myself, (laughs) (laughs) at least to tell clients. So, you know, sometimes we get people here in the office who say, I think that my spouse has been not, we've had been filing joint returns. I really don't know what's on them. I really have questions about how, he or she has been handling a business deductions or whether or not these things are legit. It's a cash business, you know, or something like that. You know, am I going to get in trouble with the IRS? And and I know there's something called innocent spouse that I think is pretty hard to get these days. So I'm, I'm curious, yeah. Hubert, about that, if you could talk a little bit about what that means and when it's available. So filing jointly, pretty much the IRS will treat that as you're both liable for the same debt. So anytime you're filing jointly, you're putting yourself in the same bucket. Innocent spouse really applies to people that had no idea or reason to know that this person wasn't paying their taxes, that they were claiming deductions. So even if you don't know, but you're living the lifestyle that this that not paying taxes affords you, the IRS is very hesitant to Prove that. So really, if someone's embezzling money, they're hiding money, they're keeping it separate accounts from you, and you had no reason to know, that's when you'll qualify for innocent spouse. It is hard to get. There are times where it meets that standard, but it is a pretty tough standard to meet. So let's just sort of unpack a little bit of what you were saying, Hubert Johnson. I think what you're saying is you didn't know, but you really had no reason to know either. Right, right. So there's all this money that should have been paid in taxes, 
And instead of going on vacations and driving expensive cars and paying down your mortgage, where you might know, it's gold bullion in a safe deposit box. It's in an offshore account, or at least it's in an account that you didn't know about. And your lifestyle has not changed in any really obvious way uh, that we might have thought to yourself, wait a second, where are we? Pay- how are we paying for this? Is that right? Yeah, that's essentially it. Yeah. So I have a case where there's a truck driver who was traveling across the country and his wife at the time was embezzling funds. He was gone. He wasn't in the home and the funds were kept in separate separate accounts. He didn't know him. His name was not connected to any of them. They still investigated him and looked at him, but he was able to show conclusively that he had no idea nor reason to know. So that was a clear cut case of innocent spouse. Yeah, exactly. All right. So since this show is about divorce and divorcing people and and intended to guide people, a lot of times people wonder about how divorce is going to impact their taxes and and their finances. It's a it's a huge question, actually. You know, and I think that there are a lot of pieces that are part of that that maybe we could kind of talk through. I mean, for one thing, could you talk about how, we talked a little bit, a bit earlier about tax filing status and whether or not you should get divorced right away and or should delay. And and I think your answer was, it depends, but that actually from a tax rate perspective, all other things being equal, then you should maybe delay a little and, and file married filing jointly for the year that, that you're in. It's when you've, the divorce is finalized. So, and even then you can, if you do a legal separation or something like that, you can still file jointly. The, the main concern here is, are you going to, if there are taxes owed, be aware that the IRS will go after both parties jointly and they don't care what's in a marital settlement agreement or a divorce decree. The judge can tell one person, hey, it's all your taxes you have to pay. You should pay 100% of this. And the IRS will still pursue both parties equally. Right. So in the settlement agreements that we work on here in the office, what we say basically is that if the IRS or any debtor comes out, any obligation is owed, comes after one person, then the other person will indemnify by in, in a portion or entirely by saying, okay, so if I have to pay the IRS a hundred bucks, you owe me 50 <laughs> or right. a hundred. And, 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 but you, what, I think what you're saying is that you could hold up your agreement all day long and say, well, wait a second, my spouse was supposed to pay this. They'll be like, yeah, tough nuggies. Is that right? Well, they'll tell them go pursue the spouse. Right. And sometimes good luck on that. You know, again, if they are unemployed or if they just don't want to pay, then you have to take them. It's another court fight. So if someone's a more responsible spouse and they know they have joint liability, it might make a lot of sense to just all assume the tax debt, but give me assets to compensate me for that. That way, I don't have any risk going into that. And then the party that's less responsible assumes the risk that they won't pay. So that's. One way to deal with it, but again, with if you're filing separate, you can file separate through your whole the whole time you're married and never have to deal with this. But it becomes a problem once married filing joint. I'm Catherine Miller, and you're listening to Divorce Dialogues, a podcast dedicated to educating people about divorce-related topics so everyone can divorce with dignity. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and be sure you don't miss an episode. And today, I'm talking to Hubert Johnson about 
tax issues and divorce. And Hubert Johnson is a tax attorney with a lot of experience. And, and so one of the things that we sort of think about when it comes to the settlement agreements are what are the implications of asset transfers pursuant to a divorce? And so can you talk, talk a little bit about that for the listeners, about whether or not a transfer of assets pursuant to the divorce is a taxable occurrence? And, and if it is, what can you do to avoid it? Well, usually it, if you're selling property to a third party, that's when it becomes a, a taxable event. Normally, if you just have, have 50000 I'm transferring it over, that's within the marriage. The IRS doesn't go after that. It's not a taxable event. But if you're selling property, you're cashing out a 401k, anytime you're dealing with the third party, that's when it's going to be a taxable event. That's a rule of thumb to go by. So it can behoove you to sell property beforehand and get higher exemptions, except especially for the primary residence. You can get up to five hundred thousand exempted, but it depend it depends on the asset and how it's being. Anytime you're selling it to a third party or something like that, that's when it's going to incur taxes. Yeah. So let's just slow down and break that up a little. So let's say you have a home, and mm-hmm. you bought it for hundred thousand dollars, and now it's worth five hundred thousand, right? And if you sell it to a third party, and you have a four hundred thousand dollar capital gain on that. Then there are there taxes due on the capital gain when you're selling to a third a third party, meaning not one of the spouses. So Harry and Sally are selling to me, and I'm unrelated. Then do Harry and Sally have a capital gain on the sale of their home to me? Not if you do it right. Tell this us is you- where you go talk to a good CPA, and as long as you came the household exemption. It's uh, on capital gains. It's two fifty per individual, or if you sell it together, it's five hundred thousand. So you can exempt the entire four hundred thousand in gain off that property if it's done and reported jointly. Okay. So you're saying if Harry and Sally sell it together to me because they have a combined five hundred thousand dollar exemption, there would be no capital gains because their capital gain is four hundred thousand under the five hundred thousand dollar combined limit. Is that correct? That is correct. So again, that's more of a CPA question, but I would go to them, talk to them, whoever's preparing your turns, and here's a big issue that I see. Usually it's one person has the CPA relationship or the tax preparer relationship. If you're concerned, get a second opinion. Talk to another CPA. Okay. And I know we're still dealing with this. Just to finish with Harry and Sally and their home uh, for a, a minute. If Harry sells it to Sally and Sally buys it out for $250,000, does Harry have to pay a capital gain on that? No. Again, he gets the exemption of 250000 Okay. But I I would verify that with the CPA. Okay. So is there anything else that people should know about how the IRS treats marital settlement agreements? They just ignore it for the most part. Now, any kind of division of assets, they will respect once it's done. But if you haven't separated up those assets and you're still going through a divorce, the IRS will hold off on any final determination as long as you're working with them, as long as you're in communication with them. I think that's really an interesting thing. So I don't know if you have any dealings with New York State, but New York State and, and the New York State Department of Taxation 
is much, much tougher in my experience dealing with clients than the IRS, that the IRS is, you know, willing to have a conversation or New York State's maybe less willing to do that. Do you have any experience with that or states being more different than the IRS? Oh, the states are almost always more difficult to deal with than the IRS. We find, though, that New York is one of the best states to deal with. Really? (laughs) And there's times we do offer and compromises with New York that won't be accepted by the IRS because a lot of rules have changed in the last few years that have made offers a lot more difficult with the IRS, whereas New York is still more flexible. Your offer will be higher generally with New York, but we've had a lot of success dealing and working with New York. You know, maybe you should tell our listeners what an offer and compromise is, because I'm not sure that everybody knows. So an offer and compromise is pretty much you're going in, you look at your assets, your ability to pay into the future and saying, I can pay $2,000 on my debt. And depending on how much you owe, they'll either accept that or reject it depending on the totality of circumstances. So for example, we had a gal who got scammed out of $500,000 in an um, elder abuse. It was an elderly scam, one of these love triangles. And she took the money out of her 401k, taxable then. Now she has to pay all the taxes on it. She owed about $115,000 to the state of New York. We settled it for $13,000. We went and did an offer with the IRS, settled that for just a couple thousand dollars. And so she, we were able to wipe out all the balances and all she paid was around $15,000 to settle the New York and IRS debts. Does that impact your credit rating? It improves it because you're getting rid of a debt and it shows the debt is settled. So it's not like a bankruptcy, which is terribly destroys your credit rating for a period of time. No, it drastically improves it. And it would be go as low as $20 on our offer. About a month or two, we had a $249,000 debt that we settled for 20 bucks. And who should consider offer and compromise? You'd be surprised. And here's one caveat. If one party, let's say we're talking about divorcing a divorcing couple, if one party goes and does an offer and compromise and wipes out the debt under their tax account, which is under their social security number, the debt will still be there for the other spouse. On a joint so, return. On a joint return or joint liabilities. But there are people making over $10,000 a month that we're able to get offers for. It really depends on where they live, what their expenses are, their family size. And you know, the easy ones are someone that's retired. They don't, they're on Social Security. They don't have much at all. But we do offers with, like I said, they go making over 10000 15000 depending on the situation. Okay. And so somebody should come to you if their tax debt is just really burdensome, that they, they can't pay their living expenses and pay their taxes rather than just ignore it, which so many people do, I've noticed. People will come and they'll be like, yeah, I haven't filed taxes in five or six years. And then I think we need to bring in somebody like you to help them clear that up, especially if they're getting divorced and they might need to involve their spouse in some way. And my general push is, look, if you have questions, get answers. If you have divorce questions, call Miller Law. And get those questions answered before you go to court and do something or say something that's going to burn you. We do a free consultation. It doesn't cost anything to get some free tax advice and find out where you are. I had one person go and file 23 years of tax returns, and the IRS only goes back six years for filing the returns. 
Wow. So they filed back to 1996 and all that debt started running as of, I think that was 2019. So I think what you're saying is they foolishly went back and filed all these old tax returns when they really only had to go back six years because Correct. it's essentially statute of limitations on unfiled tax returns. Right. And that tax debt sticks around for 10 years. So get some good advice before you, it, it, it always, it's always a good idea to get that advice early because a lot of people, you know, interest and penalties is through the roof right now and get some free advice, find out what's going on first. And by sticking your head in the sand, it only gets worse with time. You're listening to the Divorce Dialogues podcast, and I'm Catherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues has been educating people about divorce and relationship issues for over 10 years. Subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to check out our previous episodes on our podcast website, divorcedialogues.com. And I'm talking today about tax issues with Hubert Johnson, who has over 14 years of experience as a tax attorney. And Hubert, if people are interested in reaching, if you have any questions about taxes, offers and compromise or anything else, how can they find out about you and the books that you've written? So our website is guardiantaxlaw.com. And the best way to reach us is call our main line at 520-485. 7371 will set you up with a free consultation directly with a tax attorney so you can get your questions answered and find out where to go from here and we have we're on youtube linkedin we're on more places than i know (laughs) that's great so hubert in the last segment of the show a lot of people have questions about alimony and child support and you know i know that the rules around alimony and the deductibility have changed in the last several years And people also, so why don't we talk a little bit about that. Is alimony or maintenance, which is what we call it in New York, or family support or whatever it's called in whatever state the listener is in, is that still deductible to the payer and taxable to the recipient? It it is not. The rules changed, I believe, 2017. So it's not deductible as an expense on your tax return. However, when you're dealing with collections and trying to qualify for an offer compromise or a settlement with the state or with the IRS, you get credit for those expenses. So even though it's not deductible anymore, it isn't a bad thing to pay that because then you get full credit for it if it's court ordered. So I have a, had a case where a gentleman was paid 1400 a month to his ex-wife, but she didn't want to go and finalize things with the court. So he was paying this $1,400 a month out of the goodness of his heart, wasn't legally required to, and the IRS gave him zero credit for that because it wasn't court ordered. Sometimes it pays to just do it the way it's supposed to be done, and it can really help you out. So what happens, because I know that while the IRS no longer allows the deduction for for alimony, New York State does. So what, and, and some other states do, and I think that there's a split, whether or not they follow the IRS the Internal Revenue Code or not. What happens, Hubert Johnson, when there's a, a conflict between how the state handles the alimony deductibility and the federal government? Well, the conflict, it just makes it harder for you to decide who should pay what and the benefit to them. But the IRS, you'll just have to follow the IRS rules when you file your federal return and then the state rules when you file your state return. So the program should automatically make those adjustments or the CPA should know that and make those adjustments as you prepare the federal and state returns. So now let's talk about child support. I mean, child support is 
it's always a very contentious issue because nobody mm-hmm. wants to feel like they're not supporting their children, but it feels like paying money to your ex-spouse, not to your children directly. And and child support, to my knowledge, has never been deductible as a to the payor, but there are some benefits that can come along with with paying child support. And there are some benef- tax benefits that can come along with having minor children. So can you, Hubert Johnson, walk us through what those are and how to sort of think about that? So again, in 2017, claiming dependence really changed. They went to the standard deduction for primary and secondary on the return, but you still get the child tax credit. That's the biggest reason to claim children. And whoever claims the children, you'll have an adjustment on your child support calculations in most states to, to offset that. Now, focusing on child support, the big question comes, who should be claiming the children? And what typically happens is that's where the fight comes in, where someone's supposed to claim the children and someone else ignores the settlement agreement and claims the children anyway. What does the IRS do about it? Not much. Sometimes it's first come, first serve. If you want to contest it, you have to prove either that you have the majority of support. So if the child's living with you and your ex-spouse is halfway across the country, that's pretty easy to show that you're the primary one supporting the children taking them to the doctors, taking them to schools. But if you live close enough where both parties can do that, then it becomes, the IRS really doesn't want to get involved with that. And if you do file for that, to have that adjusted, it takes months, you know, probably six to nine months to have it adjusted. And even then, if they claim the child in the future, you have to go through the process because facts change, circumstances change. So if someone is claiming the children when they shouldn't, the easiest way... And what I've recommended that people do is go in and modify child support to reflect that if your state reflects that. So you can end up paying less or the other person can end up paying more if they claim the children when they're not supposed to. It's harder to fight it out with the IRS in most cases. That's good advice. And is there anything that you think that people should think about putting in their agreements in the first place to, to take care of that in advance? liquidated damages or some other something like that that might make it a disincentive? You could absolutely do that. And that would be recommended if some person says, okay, you claim the children and it would protect you in case they don't follow the settlement agreement later on. And that really is between the two parties. And that's where the IRS doesn't want to get involved. They want the two parties to figure it out and often it's up in divorce court. But if you have a clause like that, they already have something to go by, and then they would just have to collect from the other party. Sometimes easier said than done. And Hubert, if, if the agreement is silent on who gets to deduct the children or, or, or claim the child, child tax credit because it's no longer an exemption or at least in a, a period of time now where we don't have dependency exemptions, right? We have this child tax credit. And if, if if the agreement is silent, who is technically allowed to claim them or claim the whoever provides Whoever provides the majority of their support. So if you have more than 50% custody, you're technically supposed to be the one claiming the children. And that's why if you show can show that you're supporting through school, doctor's visits, you're the one taking care of the children and your address is with the school, with the doctor, et cetera. That's what they're going to be looking for. 
you're the one signing up for daycare and taking them to and from daycare. Those are the easiest ways to show I'm the one providing the care. And the IRS has tons of agents there ready, willing, and able to help you with these determinations, right? No. <laughs> the IRS is too busy. They, 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 I, I wish they would because we see people burned by it all the time. But no, they, it, again, it's like I said, six to nine months is probably a little over optimistic. Yeah. For them to actually consider a case and review it. And I've had cases that it went years with people fighting these kind of issues. All right. So as we come to the end of the show, is there anything else that you think that is important to mention about divorce and taxes that our listeners should know about? Ask early. Find out, get your information before you step into issues. It is so much easier to prevent damage than to fix it. And and there are times that we have divorcing parties that want to work together and we've set up installment agreements where someone is paying for it, uh, for the other party. But then life happens. Anticipate life happening. Call and get advice early. I think that's great advice. Hubert Johnson, thank you so much for being my guest on Divorce Dialogues. It's really been a pleasure and very informative. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, too.